let's get into our lesson for tonight and um, see what we can come up with here. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. We are talking overall about a, a scriptural philosophy of soul winning. And last week, we talked about why we emphasize soul winning. By the way, does anybody need an outline? We have an outline with some blanks in it. Does anybody not have one of those? Anybody not get one? Brother Josh, some of the kids didn't grab one on the way in, I guess. So, now this one, I know you, you can see the title, A Brief History of Evangelism, and, and I'm not going to take you to school tonight. Um, but it is going to kind of, we are going to kind of go through it a little bit like a history lesson, but I think it'll be very interesting to you because we're going to take a brief look at the history of evangelism tonight. But I, I, the reason why is because I think seeing how evangelism has developed, um, it, it, it may better help us to understand why it's viewed today the way it is. And honestly, this, the lesson tonight is going to really be the springboard for the lesson the next week and the week after that. But we have to go through this to be able to understand that. So um, understanding um, you know, where it came from and how it's developed is hopefully going to give us a, a better understanding of why it's viewed the way it is today. But that, I think, will help us to get a better grasp about how we are supposed to approach that individually and as a church. So let's get right into it. And starting in the book of Acts, we're going to talk about this brief history of evangelism. And the first thing is the extent of evangelism in the early church. Uh, we're going to look at a lot of verses, but all pretty much right here in Acts chapter 19. And let's just look at verse number one. And I'm not going to read through the entire passage. There's a lot here um, that really just, of course, the book of Acts is, is just filled with evangelism. Um, Paul got converted. Well, he was Saul, but he was converted in Acts chapter 9. Um, and he went and, and met with Barnabas. Barnabas was told by the Holy Spirit to take Paul in. And of course, um, you know, he didn't know what to expect, but he did what the Holy Spirit told him to do. And it turns out that Paul was actually genuinely converted. And then Paul became just this flaming evangelist for God. And the rest of the book of Acts is just filled with all of the things that, that Paul really and, and others around him did as far as evangelism goes. But you see in Acts chapter 19 and verse 1, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said to them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And so on. Paul brings them into New Testament Christianity and he starts a church. That's what you see kind of happening in the next few verses. And we pick it back up again in verse number 7. And all the men, these are the men that he was talking to, were about 12. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened, lots of different people were hardened, and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And God wrought special miracles by the hand of Paul. And then the next few verses there from basically verse uh, 12 all the way through about verse 16, God helped to get the attention, uh, helped to get attention for the gospel by miracles and, and kind of a, a sensational conflict with a demon. Uh, but God gave them that... Um, ability to be able to do miracles and, and those kind of things to get attention for the gospel. Um, you know, here you are telling a story, and that's literally the way that most of those people looked at it. It's just a story. But when you're able to add 
performing miracles and casting out demons and all of these other kind of things, you're really starting to attract attention. And so it gets people's attention to the point where they're going to listen. And that was necessary back in Paul's day because the gospel was not well known. The gospel was not across the world. There were not millions and millions and millions of Christians like there are today. But we pick back up again then in verse number uh, 17. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Verse 23. And the same time there arose no small stir about that way, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, uh, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. Think about that. Not only at Ephesus, but all the way throughout almost all of Asia, people had heard the gospel because of Paul. And so this early church at Ephesus in the book of Acts had clearly evangelized their entire city and taken the gospel into the wider region of Asia all around them. And they did all of this in the space of about two and a half years. And so that's your first blank there. The early church at Ephesus had clearly evangelized their entire area, did it only in two and a half years. So you see the extent of evangelism in the early church, but then secondly, the death of evangelism. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're only going to look um, at, at a few verses tonight. The rest of this really is, is just a history. Um, once we move outside of the realm of the Bible times, and we're not in the Bible anymore as far as what happens with evangelism after that, because... Really, the last book of the Bible was written only about 100 A.D., maybe just a little bit after that, but it wasn't long before we see the death of evangelism. So the devil thought the way to attack this explosive growth of Christianity was through persecution. Uh, the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse 14, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they might be saved, to fill up their sin always, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. So the devil thought that he was going to extinguish Christianity by bringing on this persecution. Well, that didn't work. And we see that in Acts chapter number 8, if you will turn back there. Acts chapter 8. And it's been said before, and you've probably heard this before, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and that is so true. Because what happens when persecution takes place for being a Christian? You have to be a real Christian. Otherwise, there's no point in being a Christian at all. Why are you going to say you're a Christian if you're not so you can get persecuted? And honestly, it's had a, a whole lot of an opposite effect uh, in our society today. Everybody's a Christian, right? You go out knocking on doors. Oh, yeah, I'm a, I go to church. I'm a Christian. You know, but they don't even know what the word means. But they don't have to because being a Christian doesn't mean that you're going to get persecuted for it. So when there is no persecution... Christianity and Christians become very lackadaisical in their faith. When there is persecution, it means something to them. And lots of people are converted. And their Christianity is real because of that. The Bible says in Acts chapter 8 and verse 3, As for Saul, 
This was before he became known as Paul. He, became, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So the devil realized that that didn't work. So how did he slow this explosive growth, the wide saturation with the gospel that was the early church? Well, first, there was a lot of theological controversies in the, uh, in the second century. I'm not going to take the time to go through all those. We'll leave it at that. But a lot of theological controversies pitted Christians against each other. The second thing that happened is Constantine entered the scene in the fourth century. Constantine was a Roman emperor. And of course, there was a lot of persecution going on in that early church. Constantine became a, an emperor of Rome. He became a very uh, powerful military leader. And during that time, um, Byzantium, as it was known, was one of the most powerful places in Rome, one of the most powerful cities in Rome. That was his, basically his capital. He felt so strongly about himself that he renamed Byzantium Constantinople. And if you remember any kind of history, maybe you took world history in school, then you'll remember some of this. But uh, Constantinople became a, basically a world powerhouse. And actually, Constantinople today is Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, that's where it was at. But it was the center of Rome. And he was a military leader, and so one day on the battlefield, he had a vision. They were losing, and he prayed to God that God would give them the victory, and, and he had a vision of basically a cross on a shield, and that was his inspiration that he was going to become a Christian. And so when that battle got over and they won, he converted to Christianity, or at least what his version of Christianity was. Well, Constantine swung the pendulum from the way far side over here where everybody that claimed to be a Christian was being persecuted to the opposite side of the, of the pendulum. And now anybody that was not a Christian was persecuted. If you did not claim Christianity, then you were persecuted. And so he made Christianity the official religion. Well, guess what? Everybody became a Christian because Christianity was the official religion. And if you said you were not a Christian, you were persecuted. So everybody became a Christian, which meant that Christianity absolutely meant nothing. And so Constantine did, you know, it was pretty apparent that this was not a true conversion for him because he turned the tables on all of those that were persecuting Christians and started killing all of them instead of trying to actually convert them, instead of trying to get them to realize their condition, that they needed Jesus Christ and everything else, which his version of Christianity um, basically was to co-opt everything that was known as Christianity into the Catholic Church. And then that gave rise to essentially what became a thousand years of darkness, the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, as they were called. And so the devil derailed evangelism through theological controversy, through Constantine, and a collapse in communication during the Middle Ages. Now, let me, let me explain what I mean by that. There was, there was an era there for a thousand years where there was almost a complete collapse of the true church, a complete lack of communication, because, number one, if you tried to say that you were a Christian, if you tried to spread Christianity, they cut it off immediately, you were killed, and you were you know, banished and everything else. And so there was almost no way for, that, for the word of God to spread throughout that time period. But on top of that, it got to the point where there was a caste system. So everybody was either uh, nobility, and that was people who, you know, the, the priests and all of those were part of that nobility, and of course the wealthy businessmen and everything else, or you were a peasant. And 
they got to the point within just a, a very short amount of time, a couple hundred years, where nobody knew how to read. Nobody especially knew how to read in Latin, which is what the Bible was written in. So only the priests could read the Bible, and only they could tell you what the Bible said. So nobody could read the Bible for themselves, and so they just believed everything that they were told. And so for 1,000 years, the Catholic Church had a stronghold, uh, an iron grip on, on the entire world, basically, um, where c communication and Christianity was just gone. Um, so by and large, in this 1,000-year era, men came to Christ and um, started movements because of what they read, not because of somebody that told them how to be saved. And so, and even that was difficult because only so few could read. So the third thing that we have then happening is evangelism ignored. So first of all was the extent of evangelism in the early church, then the death of evangelism, and then evangelism ignored. Now, this was a great time period in Christian history because at the end of that period came the Reformation. And in 1440, Johann Gutenberg in Germany invented the printing press. And that made it possible for them to start printing Bibles and print them in, you know, pr print a lot of them. It didn't have to be handwritten by a scribe or something like that in order for um, that word to get out. And so they started printing Bibles left and right. And they were actually, during that time, you had men like John Wycliffe and others who translated the Bible into English, or at least portions of the Bible into English, so that people could read it in the common tongue. And when they started doing that, people started realizing that the Catholic Church had been lying to them for all of those years, and the things that the Catholic Church was teaching them about, you know, penance and about purgatory and about all of these things was, was wrong. It wasn't about your works, it was about your faith in Jesus Christ. And so Martin Luther came to Christ by reading the Bible, he was a monk, but in 1517, he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church. And, you know, and it sounds like this great defiant move. I'm going to put these 95 Theses right on the door of the church. But actually, the church doors were where everybody got their information. That's basically where you would put all the, you know, the local news, any kind of event that was coming up, you nailed it to the door of the church. So I know it sounds like this is this strong defiant move, but it wasn't, it wasn't what it sounds like it is because... He just nailed these 95 theses to the, to the door. Now, it was, it was very oppositional because it was completely anti-Catholic uh, church. But um, by the way, it was called the Reformation because he didn't want to change the Catholic church. He wanted to reform the Catholic church. He, didn't, he, didn't, he wasn't trying to say that everything the Catholics believed was wrong. No, you know, Catholicism is not right. Christianity is not Catholicism. Baptists are the way to go. He didn't, they, it was called the Reformation because literally they just wanted to reform the Catholic Church from the inside and change a few things here and there. It's not about works, it's about faith, which you got to give them a little bit of credit. I mean, this is something that was completely foreign to them, but uh, it was called the Protestant Reformation because they were protesting from the inside of the Catholic Church, uh, which is why we're not Protestants. We could take a whole long time to talk about that, but we are not Protestants. You're either, you're either Catholic or Protestant, right? I mean, that's what they try to, that's the, the groups that everybody, that they try to put you in. We're not Protestant. We were not protesting from the inside of the Catholic Church. We were saying that the Catholic Church was wrong and have been all along. Um, so the movement that he and others birthed brought about a return, by and large, to what we would consider orthodox doctrine, but they ignored evangelism. And we're not trying to spread the message of the gospel the way that the early church was trying to spread the message of the gospel. Along came John Calvin about that same time. Now, John Calvin 
was a very influential author during that time. He, he, he preached as well, but um, he was one of the leaders of the Reformation. The, most, the, the way that John Calvin influenced the most people was through his writings. And John Calvin wrote a lot of things that were beneficial in drawing people away from Calvinism. Uh, but in the process, he birthed a detailed theological idea that today is called Calvinism or Reformed Theology. And basically, um, and, and boy, we could take a long time to go through what Calvinism is. We're not going to take the time to do that. But Calvinism really supports a view of salvation that leaves man completely out of it. In other words, we have no choice in whether we're going to be saved or not. It's completely up to God, and it is. God has a lot to do with that. Obviously, if God didn't do his work, if God didn't call us and all of those other things and, and make it possible for us to hear the gospel, then we could not be saved. If Jesus Christ had not died on the cross, we could not be saved and all of those things. But basically, you're going to be saved or you're not going to be saved. You have no choice in the matter. That's, that's kind of the crux of Calvinism, and that removes a lot of the motivation for evangelism. Why should we go tell people how they can be saved if they're going to be saved, whether we tell them or not? And so, in other words, the Reformation and following was birthed in a non-witnessing world, and it continued that way. Which brings us then to number four, the rise of modern missions. So I, I guess I should give you number three just to make sure you filled it in. During the Dark Ages, men came to Christ because of what they read, not because of who had spoken to them. Now, fast forward a few hundred years, 1500s is the 16th century, and in 1517 is when the Reformation uh, started. That's when the Reformation took place, and it, and it, and it lasted for a good hundred or so years. Um, but we fast forward to the 18th century, and in the 18th century, William Carey was an English cobbler with a love for geography, a love for world languages, and so he built a model of, the, of a map of the world and put it above his workbench. And, and because of that, he started to pray that the world would be reached with the gospel. And I think it's interesting that you, you have to remember that prayer feeds evangelism. The more we pray for somebody, and this is one of the reasons why we have these cards and we're praying for those people, because the more you pray for them, the more likely you are going to be to tell them how to be saved. And that's exactly what happened with William Carey. Uh, his prayer for the world logically led him to want to go to the lost world with the gospel. And so he went to his denomination with this idea of taking the message of the gospel to the world. And they told him this, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen world, he will do it without your help or mine. He decided to go anyway. And he formed the first missionary society and he went to India and the idea caught on. It was like a fire. It was a renewed emphasis on evangelism that swept through almost every Christian group. And I say Christian in quotations. There was, um, back in the 17th and 17 and 1800s, many, many of them were much more like we are uh, today than, than these denominations are today. But the Moravians, the Baptists, the, the Presbys, as they were called, uh, the Methodists, many of those during that time caught this idea of evangelism and made it their goal to get the message of the gospel to other people in the world. And so then we see number five, the birth, the rebirth of mass evangelism. Um, we saw that happen with a lot of names that we're very familiar with. John Wesley uh, shared the message of the gospel and then Whitfield in the 18th century. Finney, and then Moody in the 19th century, Billy Sunday, and then Billy Graham in the 20th century. 
And that idea continues today, mass evangelism. It's, it's on a much smaller scale than it was, uh, partially because our media today is so much different. Uh, you don't have to have everybody in a mass stadium in order for them to hear it. They can see it on TV or they can see it on Facebook or whatever else. And so there's, there's, um, that's kind of changed. Mass evangelism has changed. Um, but getting a whole bunch of people to come for an Easter pageant or a Christmas program or a big day promotion or something like that, that's kind of the idea of, of mass evangelism, even though it's kind of on a lot smaller scale today, like I said. Which brings us then to number six is the birth of enlistment evangelism. Enlistment evangelism. We're talking about, uh, we're talking about a bunch of different types of evangelism, and that's going to play a role in kind of how we close everything out tonight and then how we move forward in the next couple weeks. But I want you to see this so that you understand this. Robert Rakes, and you see that in number seven, in the 18th century developed a concept that we're very familiar with today, and that is the idea of the Sunday school. Um, he had a desire to teach, and he was in England, he had a desire to teach English children. Uh, many of them were growing up without an education at all, um, a, a physical or a spiritual education. There, many of them were poor, couldn't afford to go to school because they had to work. They got them out there cleaning chimneys and doing all of these kind of things, and, and many of them didn't even have parents because of things like the plague that had gone through and, and so on. And so uh, he had a desire to teach English children not only a secular education, but a spiritual education, a religious education, and so that gave rise to the first Sunday school. He started that, and, and by 1831, 25% of all the English children in that country were receiving a religious education in Sunday school. Um, and so that's why we call it enlistment evangelism, because base, basically, I mean, this idea was so successful that it actually made its way to America and spread around the world through British and American missionaries. I mean, Sunday schools popped up everywhere um, around that time. But the, the, the basic idea of Sunday school was that they would enlist or that they would enroll people, uh, non-church attending people, into the Sunday school. And so this became known as enlistment evangelism. You would enlist these people. They would come every Sunday to get this education, and they would be taught the gospel. And a lot of people were taught the gospel, and that brought them under the influence of the Bible, brought them under the influence of the sound of the gospel, and many, many people accepted Christ because of that. Um, huge numbers of people were evangelized. Now, in our day, uh, the Sunday school is increasingly being replaced by small group studies and things like that, but uh, it's still hugely effective, though. Many, many churches still have uh, Sunday schools, which then brings us to number seven, the advent of media evangelism, uh, and that is number eight there. The 20th century with radio, TV, and internet saw the advent of media evangelism, and that's what we're talking about. Radio, TV, of course, internet is relatively new, uh, but they were all all of these things were seized upon by forward-thinking Christians, forward-thinking pastors, uh, evangelistic-minded Christians as ways to reach people. And, of course, that continues um, with, honestly, with increasing strength in American circles today. Um, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are saying, uh, you know, if you're not using the power of the Internet, then you're not spreading the message of the gospel. And I believe that's true to a certain extent. We still ought to be knocking on doors because the Bible does not change. God, when he wrote the Bible or had men write the Bible back in the days when the Bible was written, knew what was going to happen. And he didn't say, you know, go out and tell them, go out and compel them to come in, go house to house and do all that stuff until the world changes. And then, you know, only do it through the Internet. 
you know. But I do believe that it's a very good tool to be using. Uh, many, many people use the internet today, and if we're not using it, we're missing out on a, on a great way to be reaching people. But that is what the idea of media evangelism is. And then enter niche evangelism. Uh, that is number nine, niche evangelism. And that's, it's a form of enlistment evangelism that's tailored to specific subsets of the population. And what I mean by that is this. Um, with an increase in an evangelistic outreach uh, mentality, church growth, um, and with really, honestly, the increasing emphasis on evangelism, there came attempts to reach segments of the population that were not yet reached. And so these little niche groups were started. Um, that was mostly done by uh, tailoring programs to fit this certain group. And I'm going to give you a couple examples, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, but the earliest examples were the YMCA, right? The Young Men's Christian Association. It's come a long way from that now, but that's where it started, right? Young men that needed to hear the message of the gospel and, ha and needed to have an outlet, and so they created that. Um, another one was the BYPU, Baptist Young People's Union, and that one's, uh, that one's as far as I know, I don't think it's still around um, today, but that's kind of a niche group, and now there's a whole lot of niche groups that are out there today. You look at, uh, you, there's all kinds of prison ministries, right, reaching specifically prisoners. Um, mops, I don't know if you've seen that, mothers of preschoolers, right? That's another way to reach out to evangelism, but you just have so many of them with, with divorce recovery and and uh, Reformers Unanimous for, for people who are uh, struggling with addictions. Um, you have uh, nursing home ministries. You have all kinds of different things to reach certain segments of the population with the gospel. And they, I mean, they're, they're going a lot of different ways, too, because you have CCM concerts. You have, uh, you know, you, you have chaplains, uh, uh, sports chaplains and, and athletes for Christ and, um, you know, so many different things. Things. And some of these are done inside a church. They need workers. They need space. They need money. Um, some of them are done outside the church. And I'm not saying that they're all bad. And I'm not saying that they're all good. But they're all forms of niche evangelism where, you, where you're trying to get the gospel to a certain group of people. And that leads, uh, leads us to number nine, which is a renewal of personal evangelism in the 1950s. And you see there in number 10, but it peaked in the 1970s and has been in decline ever since. Now, it was led by men like Lee Robertson, men like Lester Roloff, men like Jack Hiles, and others with large churches. And I don't agree with all of their methods, especially Jack Hiles with his idea of easy believism. You know, uh, you have a whole crowd of people, and all right, raise your hand if you want to get saved. All right, you're saved now, without dealing with them personally. Um, I, I, don't, I don't agree with that, but, but I, they influenced a lot of people, and there were very many uh, genuine conversions during that time. And in the 1950s, obviously I was not around then, but the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s, that is when a lot of these churches really just exploded with growth. And a lot of the well-known churches, like First Baptist Church of Hammond, like um, a lot of these other churches that were led by men like Lee Robertson and these guys got their start in the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. And that continued through the 70s that was driven by just the incredible growth of a lot of these independent fundamental Baptist churches. Um, and that's the church that I grew up in was, was, was that way. Roger Vogel was our pastor. He's the pastor there for 45 years, but he started the church in 1970. And in 1970, 
this boom was taking place where many people were getting saved as a result of personal evangelism and a lot of churches were getting started by people who were saved from somebody personally evangelizing them and because they saw the benefit and how it helped them, they had personal evangelism outreaches in a lot of different ways coming out of their churches. And so it was just this big boom of all of that. Sadly, what happened is with the decline of most of these churches following the death of the pastor, or at least the retirement of the pastor, uh, a lot of these huge mega churches that were, you know, there's a lot of mega churches today that are not even, you know, I, I would question whether or not the pastor is even saved, let alone whether or not everybody in it is saved and leading people to Christ and all of that stuff. But um, these were mega churches that were preaching the gospel. They were preaching the truth. They were evangelizing the lost. And as they started to die off and get too old to be able to do these things, these churches declined at the same time. And personal evangelism has kind of gotten to the point where it's taken a back seat again. Um, it's, personal evangelism is done more than pre-1950s, but much less than in the 1970s. And so that brings us down to the last point. In summary, there really are only two types of evangelism. You have personal evangelism and impersonal evangelism. And I know that's, that's not groundbreaking, but impersonal evangelism is most of the ones that we talked about tonight. Mass evangelism, event evangelism, enlistment evangelism, niche evangelism, media evangelism, because you're not talking to people one-on-one, -on -one, you're talking to people in larger groups. And again, I, I would not be, um, we wouldn't have big days, like friend days and anniversary Sundays and things like that, if I didn't think that it was helpful to get as many people in as we could and get them under the sound of the gospel. So I'm not saying that these things are all bad, but, the, but we're very much hindered by that. Uh, and that's actually what we're going to talk about next week, is the limitations of impersonal evangelism. But the other type of evangelism is personal evangelism. That is one person talking to one person about his need for Jesus Christ, with the goal in mind of bringing that person to Jesus Christ. And the week after that, we're going to talk about the potential of personal evangelism. So this is kind of just setting the stage to get us to the point where we can talk about why impersonal evangelism, even though in certain situations it works, is not the best compared to personal evangelism. We talked about why we emphasize it. We're going to talk about how we emphasize it pretty much over the next couple of weeks. All right? But we're done for tonight. So let's close in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. So thank you for uh, the, the great cloud of witnesses that has gone on before us, so many of who were witnesses for Jesus Christ and who did so much in spreading the message of the gospel. God, I pray that you'd help us, not just as an individual church here, but as Christians in general, as Christianity as a whole, that we would get back to personal evangelism. So many more people could be saved. So many more people could be one for Christ and truly have lives that are transformed if we would get back to this idea of personal evangelism. And so I pray that you'd give us a heart for that, a desire for that, and that you would fill us with your power to be able to do it. I pray that you give us a good rest of the week. Again, we'll thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.